You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. I'm Tracy Diamond, the Adult Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and I want to say thank you for joining us in the African American Department of Central Library, and welcome to a very special Poetry and Conversation. So tonight, we're absolutely thrilled to have Jericho Brown reading from his new collection, The Tradition. After he talks, we'll have a Q&A, and then there will be time to mingle and buy books from the Ivy Bookshop. And we are podcasting the event tonight, so during the Q&A, please wait for someone from the Pratt Library to come to you so we can all hear you. Jericho's new collection, Their Tradition, shows beauty next to pain, his seeing pushes against walls that hold people apart, though the poems in the tradition are unresolved. How could poems that show ongoing life, intersecting multiple identities, have resolution? perhaps by marrying multiple forms to create a new reality within a poem. As Jericho writes in one of the duplex poems, a poem is a gesture towards home. It makes dark demands I call my own. Jericho Brown is the recipient of the Whiting Writers Award and fellowships from the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, and the National Endowments for the Arts. His first book, Please, won the American Book Award, and his second book, The New Testament, won the Ansfield Wolf Book Award and was named one of the best books of the year by Library Journal, Cold Front, and the Academy of American Poets. He is an associate professor and the director of the creative writing program at Emory University in Atlanta. So please give a warm welcome to Jericho Brown. Hey, how y'all doing? I, um, I have to say before I start to read that I'm really glad to be here. I've been trying to give a reading at this library for 19 years. I'm not making this up. So when they, when they asked me to come, they were like, I don't, know if, I don't know if Tracy, Tracy, thank you for the introduction and thank you for having me here. And thank you to all of the librarians and everybody who had anything to do with, I mean, from the librarians all the way to the people who are going to clean up after us when we leave here. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here because um, when they when they sent the email, they were like, "Oh, you know, trying to figure out how to get me to come." And I was like, "I'll just walk. <laughs> I'll walk from Atlanta. I'll get there." So I'm really happy to be here and really um, excited about the work that this library is doing and how it's been on the side of poetry for such a long time. Uh, I see myself and I think of all poets as ambassadors for poetry itself, and so I really appreciate the opportunity to share in this moment with you when poetry is making a comeback on this planet Earth. Uh, I'm going to read for you a few poems. Um, I'll read retrospectively, which is to say I'll read a little from Please and a little from the New Testament. But I'll also read from my, ba- my brand new baby book, um, The Tradition. Look at her. She's so pretty. I'm serious. I love her. She's so young and beautiful. She came out April 2nd. Look at her. Is she a, she's a, yeah, I love her. And look. 
I'm really excited. You know, I have the best book cover ever in the whole world. So I always tell people, even if you don't like the, the poems, you should get the book just to have it on your coffee table because, you know, the cover's really nice. Where I'm from, um, no matter what we began, we always began it with prayer. So, prayer of the backhanded, not the palm, not the pear tree switch, not the broomstick, nor the closest extension cord, not his braided belt. But God, bless the back of my daddy's hand, which, holding nothing tightly against me and not wrapped in leather, eliminated the air between itself and my cheek. Make full this dimpled cheek, unworthy of its unfisted print, and forgive my forgetting the love of a hand hungry for reflex, a hand that took no thought of its target, like hail from a blind sky, involuntary, fast, but brutal in its bruising. Father, I bear the bridge of what might have been a broken nose. I lift to you what was a busted lip. Bless the boy who believes his best beatings lack intention, the mark of the beast. Bring back to life the son who glories in the sin of immediacy calling it love God save the man whose arm like an angel's invisible wing may fly backward in fury whether or not his son stands near help me hold in place my blazing jaw as I think to say excuse me labor I spent what light Saturday sent sweating. I'm sorry, I start over. I got a little distracted. Oh no, I'm sorry. Labor. I spent what light Saturday sent sweating and learned to cuss cutting grass for women kind enough to say they couldn't tell the damn difference between their mowed lawns and their vacuumed carpets just before handing over a $5 bill rolled tighter than a joint and asking me in to change a few light bulbs. I called those women old because they wouldn't move out of a chair without my help or walk without a hand at the base of their backs. I called them old and they must have been. They're all dead now, dead and in the earth I once tended. The loneliest people have the earth to love and not one friend their own age, only mothers to baby them and big sisters to boss them around. Women, you want to please and pray for the chance to say please too. I don't do that kind of work anymore. My job is to look at the childhood I hated and say I once had something to do with my hand. Um, so I, y'all are so nice. Thank you. So I, um, one of the things that I find myself doing in my poems is trying to recover or reclaim or, or reinvent the language that I heard growing up. Um, I'm originally from Shreveport, Louisiana, and um, I live, I grew up there until I was, I would say, 18. I lived in New Orleans, Louisiana for almost 10 years, and I moved to um, Houston, Texas. And when I left Houston, Texas, I moved to San Diego, California, which is where I found out I had an accent. Um, 
I also found out there were all these words and phrases that I thought were common parlance all over the world, but really uh, were just things that we only said in the South. So the, the title of this next poem um, is a phrase that I grew up hearing uh, that you may not know, but I think uh, you'll, you'll figure out what it means in context. Four day in the morning. My mother grew morning glories that spilled onto the walkway toward her porch because she was a woman with land who showed as much by giving it color. She told me I could have whatever I worked for. That means she was an American, but she'd say it was because she believed in God. I am ashamed of America and confounded by God. I thank God for my citizenship in spite of the timer set on my life to write these words. I love my mother. I love black women who plant flowers as sheepish as their sons. By the time the blooms unfurl themselves for a few hours of light, the women who tend them are already at work. Blue, I'll never know who started the lie that we are lazy, but I'd love to wake that bastard up at 40 in the morning. Toss him in a truck and drive him under God past every bus stop in America to see all those black folk waiting to go work for whatever they want. A house? A boy to keep the lawn cut? Some color in the yard? My God, we leave things green. So I'm back in the South. I live in Atlanta, Georgia now. Hero. She never knew one of us from another, so my brothers and I grew up fighting over our mother's mind, like sun-colored suitors in a Greek myth. We were willing to do evil. We kept chocolate around our mouths, the last of her mother's lot. She cried at funerals, cried when she whipped me. She whipped me daily. I am most interested in people who declare gratitude for their childhood beatings. None of them took what my mother gave, waking us for school with sharp slaps to our bare thighs. That side of the family is darker. I should be grateful, so I will be. No one on earth knows how many abortions happened before a woman risked her freedom by giving that risk a name, by taking it to breast. I don't know why I am alive now that I still cannot impress the woman who whipped me into being. I turned my mother into a grandmother. She thanks me by kissing my sons. Gratitude is black. Black as a hero returning from war to a country that banked on his death. Thank God it can't get much darker than that. As a human being, there is the happiness you have and the happiness you deserve. They sit apart from each other the way you and your mother sat on opposite ends of the sofa after an ambulance came to take your father away. Some good doctor will stitch him up and soon an aunt will arrive to drive your mother to the hospital where she will settle next to him forever as promised. She holds the arm of her seat as if she could fall, as if it is the only sturdy thing. And it is, since you've done what you always wanted. You fought your father 
and one. Marred him. He'll have a scar he can see. All because of you. And your mother, the only woman you ever cried for, must tend to it as a bride tends to her vows, forsaking all others, no matter how sore the injury. No matter how sore the injury has left you, you sit understanding yourself as a human being, finally free, now that nobody's got to love you. Another one of those words that I heard when I was growing up is the word nim. The title of this next poem is nim. Um, if you don't know that word, it simply means that person and everyone you, you associate with that person. Uh, it's a word. I think that's a word y'all are, are saying nim in, in, that thing, in Maryland. I think y'all say nim. Yeah, I think I'm not far north enough to be outside of the nim. Um, to use it in a sentence, uh, the way it would work is uh, you see somebody, maybe you knew them in high school, you hadn't seen them in a long time. Uh, you need their family. You might say to them, Hey, how you doing? How is your mama now? And now, they said to say goodnight and not goodbye. Unplugged the TV when it rained. They hid money in mattresses so to sleep on decisions. Some of their children were not their children. Some of their parents had no birthdays. They could sweat a cold out of you. They'd wake without an alarm telling them to. Even the short ones reached certain shells. Even the skinny cooked animals too quick to catch. And I don't care how ugly one of them arrived. That one got married to somebody fine. They fed families with change and wiped their kitchens clean. Then another century came. People like me forgot their names. Um, for this next poem, you may want to know that Janis Joplin recorded the Gershwin Standard Summertime with Big Brother and the Holding Company for their 1968 chart-topping album, Cheap Thrills. She died of a heroin overdose in 1970. She was 27 years old. Track five, Summertime, as performed by Janis Joplin. When I say the joke at the beginning, y'all have to laugh again. Track five, Summertime, as performed by Janis Joplin. <laughs> this is like the free part of the free library. I'm a, I'm a bad person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, this is great. I'm having a time. Hi, how are you? <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. Track five, Summertime, as performed by Janis Joplin. God's got his eye on me, but I ain't a sparrow. I'm more like a lawnmower. No, a chainsaw. Anything that might mangle each manicured lawn in Port Arthur a place I wouldn't return to if the mayor offered me every ounce of oil my daddy cans at the refinery. My voice, I mean, ain't sweet. Nothing nice about it. It won't fly, even with Jesus watching. I don't believe in Jesus. The Baxter boys climbed a tree just to throw persimmons at me. The good and perfect gifts from above hit like lightning, leave bruises. So I lied 
I believe, but I don't think God likes me. The girls in the locker room slapped dirty pads across my face. They called me bitch, but I never bit back. I ain't a dog. Chainsaw, I say. My voice hacks at you. I bet I tear my throat. I try so hard to sound jagged. I get high and say one thing so many times, like Willie Baker, who worked across the street. I saw some kids whip him with a belt while he repeated, please. School out, summertime, and the living lashed. Mama said I should be thankful that the town's worse to coloreds than they are to me, that I'd grow out of my acne. God must love Willie Baker, all that leather, and still a please that sounds like music. See, I wouldn't know a sparrow from a mockingbird. The band plays, I just belt out, please. This tune ain't half the blues. I should be thankful. I get high and moan like a lawnmower so nobody notices. I'm such an ugly girl. I'm such an ugly girl. I try to sing like a man. Boys call boy. I turn my face to God. I pray. I wish I could pour oil on everything green in Port Arthur. Um, I wrote this next poem after finding out about and, and being confounded by the very long list of of people who have supposedly committed suicide while in police custody. Um, it includes folks like um, Jesus Huerta in North Carolina who, after having been patted down while on the walk from the police cruiser to the building where he was supposed to be booked and while handcuffed, somehow managed to shoot himself in the back corner of his head or Victor White III in Louisiana, where I'm from, who, after having been patted down while handcuffed, sitting in the back of a police cruiser, somehow managed to shoot himself in his upper back. Or Sandra Bland in Texas, who, after a day of fighting for her life, in a cell where there's video footage up until the point of her supposed suicide, hang herself with a trash bag. Coroner says, by the way, that she hang herself at just the moment that the video footage goes out. Bullet points. I will not shoot myself in the head. And I will not shoot myself in the back. And I will not hang myself with a trash bag. And if I do, I promise you, I will not do it in a police car while handcuffed or in the jail cell of a town I only know the name of because I have to drive through it to get home. Yes, I may be at risk, but I promise you, I trust the maggots who live beneath the floorboards of my house to do what they must to any carcass, more than I trust an officer of the law of the land to shut my eyes like a man of God might or to cover me with a sheet so clean my mother could have used it to tuck me in. When I kill me, I will do it the same way most Americans do. I promise you, cigarette smoke, or a piece of meat on which I choke, or so broke I freeze in one of these winters we keep calling worst. I promise if you hear of me dead anywhere near a cop, then that cop killed me he took me from us and left my body, which is, no matter what we've been taught, 
greater than the settlement a city can pay a mother to stop crying and more beautiful than the new bullet fish from the folds of my brain. So when I, um, thank you. So, you know, um, it's really, it's really interesting living in the 21st century because it's so, um, it's so attractive. People wear t-shirts that say what kind of nerd they are, you know? And it, I mean, being a nerd is like the new, it's like the, it's like, it's like the, the popular thing to be. But then there, when I was a kid, I was a real nerd and it didn't feel so hot. So, um, and I was, you know, and everybody always thinks that they were a, a special, really outcast, particularized nerd, but I really was. And I'm gonna tell, I promise y'all this is true. You know, if you're, if you're a video game nerd, for instance, you have people to play video games with. Do y'all know what I'm saying? I remember the first time I asked my mom for a video game. I have never heard that woman laugh like that. It was so expensive, you know? If you're a comic book nerd, then you get to go somewhere and you get to meet the people who are also comic book nerds at that place. Y'all know what I'm saying? It was bad, man. I was a, um, I'm going to tell y'all this. This is true. And, you know, you'll see how bad it was for me. I was a riddle nerd. Like, I know. It's awful. Like, I loved riddles. And I couldn't. I had a few knock-knock jokes, too. And I could not stop. Like, I could not, like, stop going up to people and giving them riddles. And I'm sure I drove everybody crazy. Um, so when I, when I became a poet, I, I knew I wanted to write a poem that was also a riddle. So I've been working on this for a long time. Uh, but I kept failing. And the reason I kept failing is because in order to write a poem, you can't have any idea where you're going. Whereas to write a, a riddle, you're making questions built around something that's sort of preconceived. So um, I wrote this poem, and it's also a riddle except I don't know the answer to the riddle. So maybe y'all could tell me sometime. I just like the way it sounds. Riddle. We do not recognize the body of Emmett Till. We do not know the boy's name nor the sound of his mother wailing. We have never heard a mother wailing. We do not know the history of this nation in ourselves. We do not know the history of ourselves on this planet because we do not have to know what we believe we own. We believe we own your bodies but have no use for your tears. We destroy the body that refuses use. We use maps we did not draw. We see a sea, so cross it. We see a moon, so land there. We love land so long as we can take it. Shh. We can't take that sound. What is a mother wailing? We do not recognize music until we can sell it. We sell what cannot be bought. We buy silence. Let us help you. How much does it cost to hold your breath underwater? Wait, wait. What are we? What? What on earth are we? What? Um, this new book also, uh, one of the features of this new book is, is a form that I invented called the duplex. The duplex is a, um, a sonnet, a huzzle, and a blues poem all in one, and each at 100%. So I'll read a duplex for you. Duplex. 
I begin with love, hoping to end there. I don't want to leave a messy corpse. I don't want to leave a messy corpse full of medicines that turn in the sun. Some of my medicines turn in the sun. Some of us don't need hell to be good. Those who need most need hell to be good. What are the symptoms of your sickness? Here is one symptom of my sickness. Men who love me are men who miss me. Men who leave me are men who miss me in the dream where I am an island. In the dream where I am an island, I grow green with hope. I'd like to end there. Dark. I am sick of your sadness, Jericho Brown. Your blackness, your books, sick of you laying me down so I forget how sick I am. I'm sick of your good looks, your debates, your concern, your determination to keep your butt plump, the little money you earn. I'm sick of you saying no when yes is as easy as a young man. Bored with you saying yes to every request, though you're as tired as anyone else, yet consumed with a single diagnosis of health. I'm sick of your hurting. I see that you're blue. You may be ugly, but that ain't new. Everyone you know is just as cracked. Everyone you love is as dark, or at least as black. So I'm going to finish with some love poems. Can I read you some love poems? Is that okay? There seem to be a few couples in the audience. I could be wrong about that. It's hard to tell in the United States if you're a couple or not. But there seem, you know, maybe I can help. You never know which night will be finally. So that's all right. I can read y'all little poems. Remember you said it was okay. Your body made heavy with gin. I can relax. I smell liquor on your breath. Soon your arms will be too heavy to lift, and I'll watch the weight of you shiver while you sleep. But first, I want to see that stagger, like a boy sent off to battle, shot, then sent back. I kept one once. He'd never get a good dose, only quake and dream of hands aimed at his throat. He'd cough and gag. I'd shake him awake. He was as you are, he could have died in my bed. He could have never stopped dreaming. He'd take me for the enemy. We'd fight. But you and I won't fight tonight. I'll remember some limping lover and talk all I want about war. Or maybe I won't. Maybe I don't care who survives. I only need to watch your body made heavy with gin as I hold you up from your fall at the threshold because I love you and I love you best with liquor on your breath when I can get a good look at you just the way I found you reeking and too drunk to go after the roaches with the heel of your hand and too drunk to take me for one of the roaches So the only thing I love more than poetry, there's only one thing I love more than poetry, and that's cuddling. So this next, I'm really proud of this next poem because I've been trying to write a poem about cuddling for a long time. 
stand. Peace on this planet, or guns glowing hot. We lay there together as if we were getting something done. It felt like planting a garden, or planning a meal for a people who still need feeding. All that touching, or barely touching, not saying much, not adding anything, the cushion of it, the skin, and occasional sigh, all seemed like work worth mastering. I'm sure somebody died while we made love, somebody killed, somebody black. I thought then of holding you as a political act. I may as well have held myself. We didn't stand for one thought, didn't do a damn thing. And though you left me, I'm glad we didn't. And I'll end with a, um, I'll end with a duplex. This duplex is also a cento. So um, as I told you before, a duplex is the blues, a sonnet, and a huzzle all put together. Um, and as you know, a cento is a poem that takes its lines from other poems. Usually those lines come from other poets. Um, but this particular duplex, um, this particular cento, takes its lines from all of the other duplexes in the book. I had to tell y'all that because when I get to a line that you heard before, I want you to think that I'm just unoriginal. <laughs> it's like... Duplex, Cento. My last love drove a burgundy car, color of a rash, a symptom of sickness. We were the symptoms, the road, our sickness. None of our fights ended where they began. None of the beaten end where they begin. Any man in love can cause a messy corpse. But I didn't want to leave a messy corpse, obliterated in some lilied field. Stench obliterating lilies of the field, the murderer, young and unreasonable. He was so young, so unreasonable, steadfast and awful, tall as my father. Steadfast and awful, my tall father, was my first love. He drove a burgundy car. Thank y'all so much. It's 30 minutes. So I think there's time um, for questions if I'm right. And I like, I like, this is actually my favorite part. I wish I could just go around the country answering questions. So if you have I mean, you know, if you feel like, oh, I don't want to bother him, you don't have to feel that way because I actually like answering questions. It helps me understand what I think. You'll ask me a question that I've never really thought about, and then I'll say, oh, so this is what I think because I'll start answering, which is useful, you know, to me as a poet. Which y'all don't have to. Oh, well, I guess you do. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good to see you. I didn't let you get to Baltimore without uh, me trying to come here and see you. Thank you I'll for break being the here. Ice. I'm not afraid. Um, Jericho. I've known you and known your work and seen you over time um, and watched your trajectory as a poet. Would you please speak to those who are not quote unquote serious poets, mm -hmm. as well as those of us who are part of the next generation? Mm -hmm. um, and just tell us maybe a little bit of insight about your process and maybe give some words of wisdom to those that I mentioned earlier. 
and I bring you greetings from the Furious Flower Poetry Center at James Madison University on behalf of that crew down there. We missed you this week, but we know you're here. Um, thank you so much. You're so kind. Um, okay, so process. You know, there are two kinds of processes, so especially when you're talking about young young poets or people who um, are sort of coming up in a, in a new generation of poets, there's the process that happens in literal writing, and then there's the process that we don't like to talk about, and that is how do you actually make your work visible in the world, right? Um, and part of the reason we don't like to talk about that is because um, often that seems a capitalist venture. And the reason why that seems a cap, and the reason why poets don't like that is because we know the truth about capitalism. We know that it doesn't really work out. Do you understand what I'm saying? And, and when I say that, I know a lot of people think that I'm being somehow like highfalutin rebellious when I say that. But in truth, we actually know as people who love to read that there is no value you can put on that. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? That, that there's no value that you can put on the imagination or the inner workings of the imagination or what happens between you and a text. When you're reading, you literally build a world in your mind based on what you're reading. And that world was created by somebody who you may never see. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? And I'm, I'm sort of amazed by the fact of that. Um, and you can't really put money on it. Do y'all follow what I mean? So... And you know, value is sort of an interesting thing to talk about in our culture in particular because we often are looking at one another. Um, I'm not saying the people in here when I say we because I know y'all know better than this, but we are often looking at one another um, in terms of value or in terms of um, worth. And that worth has to do with, well, how much money can you, like literal money, can you make or are you worth? Do y'all follow what I'm saying? But then that doesn't really work out and we know that that's not true because then what does that say about my grandmother? Do y'all follow what I'm saying? Um, and I can, I, you know, the all of the money that my grandmother made in her lifetime would never amount to, like, what somebody else thinks of as the worth of a valuable human being in dollars. Do y'all follow what I mean? But I know better than that about my grandmother, right? So anyway, um, so there's that. But, I, you know, let me talk about process instead of talking about that then. Um, for me, I just think it's really important that everybody does what's good for him or her. Or them. Like, I think it's a good idea that you figure out what works for you and use it. But you have to be figuring it out and you have to live by it. And so that would be the best piece of advice I can give. What works for me is not necessarily going to work for you. I mean, when I'm writing, it's very important that I not know what I'm talking about until the very end, until the very last draft. And even then, I don't always completely know. Because I write line by line and I write given the music of the line. I don't really write thinking about theme or thinking about content because I trust myself as a poet. I trust myself as a human being with experiences. I trust myself as a person with real life concerns. Do you see what I mean? And I imagine that those things are going to come through in the poems. But I think other people like to start with stuff. But I can't start that way because if I start with the thing I, I know I want to talk about, then I'll never get anywhere. Do you follow what I mean? And for me, it's very important that discovery be a part of what I do. And I would like to believe that poets and artists all over the world, no matter what their genre or what their art, that people are really thinking about making a discovery through the thing they make for themselves, right? So ultimately, I guess I'm asking people to be, I mean, my advice would in that case be also to be a little self-centered, right? Like that in the moment of writing, what becomes important to you, what you find out, what you investigate, what you discover, Become, will become important to other people, but you sort of have to put your own discovery first, if that makes sense. Um, 
So that's it. That's all I got. Nikki Giovanni tells people never say no. I like that. Never say no. I think that's good advice. Thank you. Any other questions? Yeah. Oh, there's a microphone, so I have Hello. to. Hello. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Hi. Um, thank you so much for coming and reading thank with you. us and blessing us. Was there a series of poems or a poet or a poem that got you into poetry? Yeah, probably a lot of po poets. I mean, my relationship, part of the reason why I'm so excited to read in this library and whenever I get to do anything for any library, I get excited because I know libraries had a lot to do with my childhood and saving my life. And, and I know that libraries allow for my mother to be able to raise her kids, me and my sister. Without them, she wouldn't have been able to do, um, do what she did with us. You know, she, she, she made it work because of libraries. My mother, um, I was fortunate enough to have a mother who couldn't afford childcare. And she's an improvisational genius. So she understood, well, I can't afford childcare, but my kids need to be somewhere in that gap between after school and when I can get home. And so she would have us after school walk to the library or she would take us to the library when there were errands that she needed to run that she couldn't take us on. And so we would spend days and hours, we spent a lot of time in libraries. And you know, my mom wasn't worried about us tearing up the library or anything like that. Y'all can't do this with your kids, but with my mom, she didn't have a problem with, with leaving us anywhere because we were afraid of our mother, you know? So, um, and, and at the time, there was nothing, you know, now when you go in a library, the first two floors are like, are like computers, you know? But at the time, there was nothing in libraries but books. Do you know what I'm saying? So we would spend the d days looking at books, and that's how I, and I, I got excited about poetry because I felt like I could do it. And by that, what I mean is, as a young, I mean, I mean six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, as a very young person, I would open a book of fiction or of any other kind of prose, and I would get stressed out. I mean, I would feel anxiety. There's so many words. I'm like, look at all, how am I supposed to do that? And they were always big old thick books, you know, and I'd be like, this is too much. And I just couldn't deal with it. And then when I found poetry, I remember this feeling, and I liked it. It felt like I was cheating, you know, because it was only one-fourth of the page, do you know what I'm saying? I was like, and I could get through books and books and books of poetry. Um, the first time, I, I'll never forget the first time I read a book of poetry. I don't remember the book because I have this other memory that sort of surpasses it. After I, I read the book, that day my mother, she came and she picked us up from the library. As usual, she said, what did you do in the library today? And I said, I read a book, mommy. And my mother made a face and a sound that I had never heard or seen before. And I just wanted that to happen. My baby read a book. And, I, and you know, she was just being a mom. But for me, I was like, oh yeah, I did. I read a book. You know what I mean? Like I was all excited, like, oh, this is where it's at. She ain't hitting me. She not mad. She ain't, you know, she was really excited about this fact. So because that happened, I wanted to make that happen a lot. And I really felt, and I, I wouldn't tell her they were books of poetry because I felt like I was cheating. Right. So I was like, oh, but I can still read all these. So I, I had no idea what were going on in these books. And many of them, once the libraries, once the, and I thank God for this, that the librarians knew who the supposed famous poets were, but they didn't really know what poetry was what. Do you understand what I'm saying? Necessarily. Do you follow what I mean? So at the time, I mean, they would just give me books of poetry because they were by poets they had heard of. So I was reading Langston Hughes and Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson, but I was also reading Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton and Robert Lowell, and I was also reading Rita Dove and, at that time, Robert Pinsky. 
right? So they would just give me these books of people that they had heard of, people often who had been poet laureates or had won Pulitzers or something like that, right? And, you know, it's not really what I would advise. I mean, Anne Sext I wouldn't be given, you know, a depressed 10-year-old Anne Sexton's poem, Wanting to Die. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm, you know, I was glad that I had that education. So those were the first poems that I read. And I think part of the reason why I fell in love with poetry is because, I mean, my relationship to poetry is like, I think it's like our relationship to trees. You know, everybody in here, I mean, some of you don't because y'all are, maybe you don't, but I think everybody in here has a tree. Don't you have a tree? Like, as soon as I say it, you think of your tree. Good, y'all do. Y'all are like, yeah, there's my tree. See? Right? So, but you know what you don't do with your tree? You don't say, well, this branch right here, if I put it in the context of the 18th century, you don't do that to your tree. You know, your tree is like, you love it because you love it, and you don't understand it, but you know it. You know it's true. Do you understand? And that was my relationship to poetry. I didn't have to understand every line. I just sort of had feelings about the music of the lines, and I understood that they were true. So that was sort of my early education in it. Any other questions? Yes. So, uh, so that was amazing. Thank you. So Thank speaking you. Of, of death and um, I, I, I hear, and maybe this is completely legitimate, but I hear John Donne like speaking through you. That's Thank you so much. And, and so I, I want to ask about about like this omnipresent guest in your poems, which is death, right? And I want to think about there's different kinds of death, right? There's you writing against the clock, and is that? And I just want you to say which kind of death matters more to you, which is an impossible, stupid question, but I, I just want to ask it, right? It's so, like there's you against the clock as an individual, like we're all mortal, right? And there's you as a member of a group that the state wants dead, right? Yeah. And there's you as you know. Keats, like you're just you're trying to you're connecting to the romantic spirit, even though you're just this one person, right? Yeah. And so, what what how do those kinds of death play into each other? Well, let's also understand there's the death that people would call death that is actually orgasm too. Yeah, right. Right. Uh -huh. um, and I, I the reason I'm saying that is because what what I mean what's most important to me is that although I I know it doesn't necessarily happen, you know I read the reviews. I'm not supposed to, but I read them. Although it's... <laughs> Don't read the comments. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, but I know it, you know, and I can't run, I can't make it happen. And I, I understand that I live in a politicized body, and I understand that I live in a nation that, in a world that means to politicize me and to politicize er others. But when I'm writing my poems, I'm thinking about tenderness and love. Do you know what I mean? And I think of myself, if I have to think of myself as a poet, I think of myself as a love poet. You know, and I think all of the poems that I, ha that I have ever written have in them, yeah, there, there will be um, things in the poems that we think of as political, but they're really also things that are a part of real, actual, everyday life for people. And balancing those things or surviving those things or being resilient in the midst of the things has to do with a sense of love for something. Do you understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that's really, I mean, if I'm thinking about a death, I think about the erotic moment, yeah. right, that is, that is fully present and fully absent. And I think that erotic moment is like the lyric moment. Do you follow what I'm saying? Right. The moment yeah. of sublimity, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's sort of what I'm, I mean, that's what's, I guess, mo most important to me in all of those, because I think if we were to attend to that moment, then we wouldn't have folk. You know, every time I think about um, Darren Wilson, you know, Darren Wilson said it. When he referred to Mike Brown, he kept saying it. Do y'all remember that? Mm -hmm. Like he, he would say, it was coming at me. That's why Mike Brown is dead. Because Darren Wilson thought it. He couldn't imagine that was a person. Mm -hmm. Do you follow him? I mean, no, no clue. 
Do you follow what I'm saying? So for me, um, I don't think about the politics of police. I think about humans looking at each other and thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't harm you. Like you're a person. Do you follow what I mean? So yeah. Other questions? It was amazing to hear you read. Thank you. And um, when we walked in here, this is the space most often that poets have read that I've been to at the Pratt is this children's room, mm -hmm. which has these like cozy little circles and it's sort of like a womb. And when we got in here, I was thinking, you know, this doesn't feel as warm, but you, in your warmth, have made it very Thank welcoming you. to Thank all of you. us. Um, so my question is, the endings of your poems are staggering, and they always jolt, at least for me, they always had this jolt of not wanting the poem to end. Um, and I wonder how you kind of arrive at endings. Mm -hmm. And I, don't, I feel like that's a far more technical question than others have asked, but I just yeah, yeah. Well, it obviously is different for every poem. One of the, I mean, one of the things that I think about is, um, I think about beginnings. I mean, when I'm working on an ending, I'm thinking about, and when I'm revising a poem, I'm thinking, well, I'm pretty sure that this first line or these first three lines should be where they are. And I'm interested in the, um, the inevitability at the end of a poem, you know, the surprise that is the inevitable surprise. So I'm interested in going somewhere that is surprising, but it's also when you're reading the poem, you sort of feel like, of course, at the same time. Um, and so that's what I'm always sort of pushing toward as I'm, as I'm revising and writing endings of, of poems. I'm pushing toward that which is a surprise, but also an of course. Um, and part of the way that I can get to that, of course, is a sense of oneness that I find if I can make the poem somehow circular, right? That, that there's something about the beginning that has to be, um, if not resolved, then refuted at the end of the poem, if that, if that makes sense. So that's one of, the, one of the things that I think about when I'm writing endings. Um, the other thing uh, that I noticed I was trying to do a lot in this particular book is I, I don't really have the language for it, and I've sort of talked about it this way with my students, and they understand it because they get a lot of lessons on it. But I try to end outside of the poem. So there's a way that I have all of the elements of the poem probably in the last three lines of the poem, and yet I want those last three lines to seem to be about something completely different. So in a way, they're tied, obviously, because it's the elements that have come through. You've been reading them in line after line, but then they're also reaching out past the poem into another world or another sense of things. Thank you for your question. And we have time for two more. Just two? It's too bad. Hi, um, my name's Dominique. I'm from Morgan State University. Hey. Um, I just wanted to say um, I really appreciate you coming, and we learned about your duplex in class. Really? So, yes, yes, we did. So I was State, like, you telling people I say, hey, I appreciate that. <laughs> yes, like it was, it was one of my. Who's your teacher? You don't remember. I do remember. <laughs> I do remember. And you just want to tell right me now. after the reading. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you after the reading when I remember in my head. All out in the street. I know. Yeah, exactly. After, okay. But I wanted to um, ask you a question. Um, do you have any advice for young writers about finding joy in writing and kind of writing past fear? This is a great question. Um, I, think, uh, I think the way 
to do anything is to accept the fact of failure as a good time and that you have to work with failure as play. Here's what I mean by that, right? Because um, that's hard, you know, that gets difficult to say. It's like, how am I going to just be out here accepting failure before I understand that I ain't supposed to be doing this thing? Do you understand what I mean? But anybody who ever did anything well was not good at it the first time. And I find with young people, they sort of want to wake up one day and they, you know, to poetry, they want to be, they want to be, you know, they want to be Whitney Houston singing I Will Always Love You after the first poem. Do you follow what I mean? But it doesn't work like that. And it, it would not have worked that way for Whitney Houston. And you can sort of know that if you listen to the first album, you can sort of know that person singing that album would not have been able to sing I Will Always Love You. Do you follow what I mean? So that's, that's sort of the, that's the first thing that I think is most important. And, and it's important that you start thinking about the other things you've become good at. And if you can think about what you went through to become good at them, then that will help you um, be the best writer that you can possibly be. Uh, by that, what I mean is, can somebody in here cook? Can anybody, I mean, like, really, what can you cook? Can somebody cook something that'll get them a ring in here? Like, can, nobody can cook. Y'all just all eat. <laughs> he can really cook. What does he cook that's good? Ev everything? Pea soup? Irish stew. So what happened the first time you tried to make Irish stew? Yeah, but I'm asking him. He's right there. <laughs> what happened the first time? <laughs> Why is she acting like he's not there? Yeah, what happened the first time you tried to make Irish stew? This is so hilarious. It was nasty. I already know, I already know what happened the first time. It was nasty. And then you, and, but you didn't say, oh, well, so much for that. I'm never doing it again, right? And now you have this whole person next to you. For all you know, the only reason they stay next to you is because of the Irish stew, right? <laughs> I mean, according to the day, like, that's what's keeping that person around. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, you know, I mean, if you, I mean, you could just think about, I mean, everybody doesn't have to cook. Some of us drive. Do y'all drive in Baltimore? You know, if you drive, like, think about the first time you tried to drive. Just, oh, yeah, that's terror. That's Exactly. And you get in the car now, you will, you will change songs, put on your makeup, call your cousin, send an email. <laughs> do y'all know what I mean? And there's a lot happening while you're driving. Could you imagine that you would have been able to do that when you were learning to drive? Do you understand what I'm saying? And anything else you do well, you do that same way. You just have to practice it to the point of getting good at it. And that means spending the amount of time, and this is sort of the second thing, that means spending the amount of time with it that you imagine you want to spend with it as a part of your identity, right? You know, being a poet for me is an identity, and therefore my daily life is really about doing what I believe a poet should be doing, right? I should be reading what I think a poet should be reading. I should be writing as much as I think a poet should be writing. Do you understand what I mean? Um, if you think about anybody... I think it's really important for us to have, um, I think it's really important for us to have divas. It's actually, if you know who your diva is, it's better than knowing your, your, your zodiac sign, but that's a whole other story. Um, but I also think it's really important for us to have just people we admire idols in the, in the world, people we haven't or could not meet, who we only see in terms of what they do in front of us, like, like a Beyonce or a LeBron James. Do you understand what I mean? And then if we see those people be great in front of us, 
then we can imagine, we can begin to imagine what, in, what went into that greatness when we're not looking. And then we can also begin to imagine what that needs to look like for ourselves in terms of what we want to do. You know, I've never, I don't know how this is my fate, but I've never slept next to Beyonce. But I know that in the morning when Beyonce gets in the shower, she does what singers do. She does scales. That's what they do. They just do. Do you understand what I'm saying? She's definitely doing them because she's turning flips while holding notes. Do you you follow what I mean? So that's the kind of thing that I think is of use for you to think about. Like, I don't want to, you know, I can have a barbershop conversation about basketball, but I don't want to talk about basketball with LeBron James. I don't, I'm not interested. Do you, do you follow? I don't want to debate with him on who won the NBA championship in 1989. I just think he know, he'll be right. Do you, under, do you understand what I'm saying? So how, I don't want to talk about constitutional law with Barack Obama. Do you do? You do. <laughs> you do. I, understand, I understand that. But y'all, y'all follow what I mean. Okay, um, I think we have another question. Thank you. Thank you. For being here. Thank you. I want to ask a question that kind of needs a preface, but I kind of don't want to give the preface until after I ask the question. Wow. So I'm going to ask the question. Do you write lying down? Um, I'm sure I have okay. started or ended that way. I, you know? I, I ask, the, the preface now is I realize that I'm, I'm a writer, and when things get serious, I tend to hit the deck. And I don't know why other than maybe that's like birthing position or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just wondered if there's anything physical that you do mm-hmm. um, that you notice. Well, one of the, I mean, there are things I notice, but I don't know. I mean, I actually do a lot of writing standing up. Um, I'll have, I'll either be on a, some sort of raised surface. I don't have like a desk that goes up and down or anything like that, but I do have like sort of this ledge at my house and I'll bend over and I'll be writing or I'll be writing like this while standing up because that's important to me. And I write walking around and sort of, um, I mean, the truth about how I write is I probably look like, um, I probably look kind of, I mean, it's really just me chanting in my underwear with a do-rag on at 2.30 in the morning, looking a hot mess. You know, if you were to see me writing, it's sort of like... And then I'm running over the computer because I got it right. And then I'm, like, working, and then I'm, like, thinking, and then the next thing I know, I'm sort of, like, I look up, and I'm in, like, another room of the house, like, <laughs> like looking around. You know what I mean? And then I'm running to the computer again. Do you follow what I'm saying? So that's probably the physical thing that happens to me. Yes. It's okay. And this is our last question. <laughs> what is there about writing or doing anything important about doing it in the middle of the night, like 2.30 in the morning? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I know, I know what it is for me. <laughs> I mean, it's probably a few things for me. One is that my parents were, were night owls, you know what I mean? My mom and dad were just... I don't know. <laughs> they just—they really wanted to be people who put us to bed by a certain time and got up early in the morning. But you know, my mom would be like frying eggs at like midnight. Like y'all want some eggs? <laughs> like why? <laughs> um, so I think that's part of why me and my sister are always up in the middle of the night. But I also think for me, um, it's very important for me to have an amount of time in which I know I cannot be distracted on any coast 
Do you know what I'm saying? So it needs to be late everywhere. I'm not going to get a phone call. I'm not going to... I'm not going to be able to say, oh, I had to do this other thing. I'm not going to lie to myself about my time. Do you follow what I mean? And I'm not going to be, I'm not even going to be distracted. You know, after a while, even social media sort of shuts down, you know. So um, TV sort of shuts down. Like, it, you, do you know what I mean? So there's a, I mean, if, if, I, if there's a new show I want to watch, it came on at 8 or 9 o'clock. Do you follow what I'm saying? So if I'm up late, then it's just me. And there's a certain quietude about that. Um, that is that is of great use to me, like knowing I won't be disturbed and I can't make for a disturb, disturbance is of great use to me. Thank you all so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jericho, so much for your poetry. Thank you all for spending an evening of poetry with us. podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.